Welcome to Harvest Decatur. Welcome to Central Illinois, where there's no such thing as bad weather, just inadequate clothing. Glad y'all are here. Glad you're here to worship the Lord and study his word. Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to John 21 as we pick up in our series, The Road to Resurrection. We're nearing the end of this great book. This is the last chapter. We're nearing the end of our series. And you might think in John 20, you know, that'd be a great place to end where Thomas, the doubter, declares my Lord and my God to Jesus. But there's still a few more things that John, the author of this gospel, wants to relay to us. A few things he wants to draw our attention to. There are a few loose ends that the Apostle John needs to tie up in chapter 21. And for the most part, those loose ends have to do with the Apostle Peter. So we're going to look at the restoration of Peter, part one and part two this week, and then also next week. As you're turning to John 21, let me just tell you about some reading I did this last week. I I did some reading on uh, the song Amazing Grace, that great hymn, and also the author of that great hymn, John Newton. Amazing Grace, probably the greatest hymn ever written in the English language, definitely the most beloved, the most recorded. All of you, I assume, know that hymn and have sung it many times. But what you probably don't know is that John Newton, the man who wrote that great hymn, was at one time in his life a truly despicable person. Newton went to sea at a young age uh, after his mother died, and early on, he lived a life of rebellion and debauchery. Even for a sailor, and sailors had reputations at that time for this, even as a sailor, even among fellow sailors, he was renowned for his appalling and despicable behavior. For several years uh, later in his life, he worked on slave ships, importing slaves from Africa to the New World. He even went on to captain his own slave ship and to participate in that despicable practice. Well, eventually, Newton grew disillusioned with his dissolute life, and it was the combination of a frightening storm at sea that scared him and also his own reading of Thomas Akempis' Imitation of Christ that led to his conversion. And John Newton, this despicable man, became a Christian. He gave his life to the Lord. Can God use a wicked man to accomplish his greater purposes? Can God use damaged goods, so to speak, to accomplish his kingdom work? Yeah, he can. And in fact, Newton went on to become a great leader in the evangelical movement in England in the 18th century, and along with William Wilberforce, he actually worked to abolish the great English slave uh, slave trade. On Newton's gravestone is written the following epitaph, which he wrote himself. You can go to England and you can read this for yourself. It goes like this. I love this. On his tombstone, John Newton, clerk, Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith which he had long labored to destroy. That is good, church. Put that on my epitaph. Now, as we come to John 21, here's why I start with this this morning. I can't help but think the Apostle 
Peter had reached a similar place of despondency regarding his service to the Lord. He denied Christ. He denied him three times. Can God still use a man like that to accomplish ministry purposes? Had Peter permanently disqualified himself for serving the Lord? I mean, surely Peter believed and was saved from his sins, but could it be used by God to accomplish Christ's greater mission? Let me ask you, Harvest Decatur, can God use imperfect people, wicked and undeserving men, to accomplish his mission? Can he now? I sure hope he can, because otherwise we should just go home right now, because I shouldn't be preaching. Can God use damaged goods, people who have failed the Lord to serve him in ministry purposes? Yeah, he can, and over the next two weeks, we're going to find that out in John 21. And here's what follows in our passage for today. What we're going to see in John 21, verses 1 through 14, is what I'm calling an enacted parable or a living illustration. It's like an an extended object lesson involving the disciples with Jesus. And we're going to learn from this enacted parable three principles. Here's the first one. Go ahead and write this down in your notes as number one. Self-sufficiency leads to failure. Self-sufficiency leads to failure. John writes this in chapter 21, verse 1. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again. After all the events in Jerusalem, Jesus revealing himself to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples, to Thomas the doubter. After all of those things took place, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, this time by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, remember that guy? Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So we've got seven disciples here, and you know, seven of the remaining 11 now that Judas has committed suicide, and they're gathered at the Sea of Tiberias. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel. Uh, this is the first time we've heard of Nathaniel since chapter one. He shows up again in chapter 21. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, and then two other disciples who are unnamed. And they go back to the place where they're from. They go back to Galilee. They go back to this place, Sea of Tiberias. This is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Uh, here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee. This is, I mean, they know the Galilee region. That's where they grew up. That's where their business was, their fishing business. This is where Jesus did incredible things in front of them. This is where Jesus walked on water. This is where Jesus fed 5,000 people on the shores of Galilee. This is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount on the shores of Galilee. This is where Jesus enacted that, that, that great catch of fish, the first great catch of fish. We'll talk more about that in a second from Luke chapter 5. The Sea of Galilee is actually the place where Jesus first called these men, these disciples, and said to them, I will make you fishers of men, not fishers of fish anymore, but fishers of men. And by the way, it's good for them going back to Galilee. This was obedience. An angel appeared to them and told the disciples to go to Galilee and wait for Jesus. So they're obedient. Jesus told them likewise. He would meet up with them in Galilee. And so the the timing of this, this took place somewhere somewhere between the 8th and the 40th day of Jesus' resurrection. On the eighth day, Jesus appeared to Thomas. 
On the 40th day, we know Jesus ascended into heaven, so somewhere between eight and 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, here they are in Galilee. They left Jerusalem. They left all the fanfare and all the festivities down there. The, the Passover is over. The, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is over, and they return back home, 80 miles north of Jerusalem in Galilee, and they're waiting for Jesus. And as they're waiting for Jesus, it's like a lot of things. They get restless. You guys ever get restless waiting on Jesus? No, no, Pastor Tony. No, that's you. That's your problem. That's not me. They're supposed to wait on Jesus. And as they wait on him, Peter especially gets restless. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. I'm tired of waiting on Jesus. I can't wait any longer. Harry Truman said once, this is President Harry Truman, he said, in times of uncertainty and fear, we revert to what we know. And that's what I see here with Peter. I can just imagine, imagine Peter, he's back in Galilee. The smell of the sea is calling him. He hears the waves crashing against the shore. And the fish out there in the Sea of Galilee are drawing him, drawing him, drawing him back to his old way of life. And Peter's like, forget waiting on Jesus. I need to do something. Forget, you know, I make mistakes when I follow Jesus. I need to do something. I know. I know how to fish. I know how to catch fish. And, you know, for all of Peter's failures and his shortcomings, it's remarkable to me, even at this stage, he's, he's still a leader. You know, John lists him as the first of these seven disciples. That's not a coincidence. Peter's a leader. And here's a case in point in verse 3. Peter says, I'm going fishing. And what do the, the other disciples do? They said to him, we will go with you. This whole, this whole situation, it sounds actually like, a, like an episode out of Duck Dynasty, you know? They're, they're bored waiting for Jesus. All right, let's go fishing. Yeah, 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 let's go do that. And Peter, Peter needs to get back to that thing that he knows how to do. You know, Jesus had told him, you're going to be a fisher of men. You're not going to be a fisher of fish anymore. And Jesus had actually told them recently, just a few days before this, as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. But Peter doesn't know how to be sent. He doesn't know what it means to, to represent Christ in the world. Peter knows how to fish, though. He's been doing that his whole life. And so he says, let's go fishing. And he leads these other disciples to do likewise. Now let's talk about this for a moment. Let's just, come, let us reason together about this. Is it, is it wrong to go fishing? Some of you are, sh are hoping that I say it's okay. Yeah, I know you are. You're like, I sure hope so. Is it wrong to go fishing? Is it now? No. No, so, some of you like to fish. Not me, but some of you like to fish. And no, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, there's, Peter's got to eat, I guess you could say. And maybe this is a way of feeding himself. He's been doing this his whole life, like I said. And here's the thing, though. Here's what John's trying to point out here. This was more than just recreation for Peter. This is more than just going to get a bite to eat. You know, fishing was his job. Fishing was his profession before Jesus called him. And Jesus came to him and specifically said, no longer a fisher of fish, you're going to be a fisher of men. So, you know, Peter's saying, I'm going fishing right now. This is more than let's just go have some fun out on the lake. This, this would be the equivalent of me quitting my job as a pastor, saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired of this. 
I'm going back to finance. I'm going back to accounting. Finance and accounting makes sense to me. Except pastor, I'm struggling with this pastoring thing. That's what's going on here. John MacArthur calls what Peter does here audacious disobedience. Audacious disobedience. MacArthur states that when Peter says, I'm going fishing, he means I'm going back to what I used to do. He means I'm going back to my old career. So Peter's not just going fishing. He's questioning his calling. And worse than that, he's leading the other disciples to do the same. What happens with this? So what happens? They decide to go fishing. And I can just imagine them getting back in their old boat. And the joy of that comes back. Oh, yeah, we used to be good at this. We're going to catch some stuff. We're going out at night. The fish bite at night. We're going to catch all kinds of stuff. And there's all kinds of joy as they go out on the lake to fish. But, verse 3, they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. All night long, working, 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 and they caught nothing. You can imagine how frustrating that would be for them. They try to abandon their calling. They try to go back on their previous calling they go back to their previous profession remember John and James they're fishermen too they were partners with Simon Peter and they fail miserably some of you might say this morning okay let's just step outside the story this morning some of you might be saying all right pastor Tony well what does this have to do with me I'm not a pastor like you I'm not a fisherman either I'm a nurse I'm an engineer I'm an electrician I'm a stay-at-home mom what does this have to do with me Well, what God is trying to teach us here in this object lesson, in this enacted parable, is, everybody listening? The futility of self-sufficiency. You depend upon yourself, you turn away from Jesus, turn away from his calling, you will fail miserably. Even if you succeed, you're going to fail. You're going to fail, and you need Jesus. You need him. Just turn to your neighbor right now and say, you need Jesus. Can you turn to your neighbor and say it like you mean it? I mean, like, they really need Jesus. Try that again. Psst, you need, you need Jesus. It's not a secret, is it? Y'all know this, don't you? In whatever you endeavor to do, even if you are a nurse, a stay-at-home mom, an electrician, a mechanical engineer, you need Jesus. Self-sufficiency leads to failure. And I think Peter is this great example to us of somebody who's self-willed, he's self-determined, he's independent, he's self-sufficient. And he needed to learn how to submit to King Jesus. He needed to come to the end of himself and learn how to trust Jesus. Maybe some of y'all are in the process right now of learning that. And you're struggling with this. Self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency. Trying to make it on your own. And you haven't yet learned as a disciple how desperately you need Jesus. Some of us have to learn the hard way, I guess you might say. You know, it's like that Rich Mullins song, Hold Me Jesus. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. Some of us are like that. Peter's like that. So, Let's see what happens next. <coughs> Peter goes back to his old profession. What does he get out of it? What does he get out of this night of fishing? He gets abject failure. What happens after that great failure? 
Malcolm Muggeridge once called failure the most creative phenomenon of life. <coughs> Excuse me. Failure is one of life's great teachers. I know you all know that. And so as this enacted parable goes on, Jesus is going to teach these disciples an important lesson about their failure. Look with me at verse 4. Here's what happens next. So just as the day was breaking, Jesus, now resurrected from the dead, stood on the shore, yet his disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Remember, Jesus now in this resurrected body, there's something, there's something recognizable about him, but unrecognizable about him. It's, you know, it's, it's Jesus, we can tell, but he's different somehow. And so there's, there's constantly this tension between Jesus, is it him, it's not him, it is, it's him, it's not him. And so here, Jesus, post-resurrection, calls out to them, about 100 yards away from them, according to later in this passage. Jesus says, children, do you have any fish? And they say back, no. This actually does remind me of a Duck Dynasty episode. It's, it's, like, it's like Jesus is heckling them. Hey, did you catch anything yet? How's that self-sufficiency thing going for you, disciples? You got any fish? No, we don't. And we've been fishing all night. And Jesus, you know, by the way, Jesus knows they don't have fish. It's obvious. It's obvious to him. And so Jesus, wanting to teach them something here, teach them the difference between disobedience and obedience, look at verse 6. He says to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now keep in mind here, they don't recognize it's Jesus. These are professional fishermen. They've been doing this their whole life. And they've been fishing all night. Can you imagine fishing all night, working all night, and somebody showing up on the shore and say, hey, why don't you, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? How would you respond to that? Probably say, hey, buddy, why don't you, why don't you get lost? Why don't you jump in a lake? There's a lake right there. Why don't you jump in that? And I'm actually surprised they don't say something like that for whatever reason. Jesus is 100 yards away from the boat. It's the length of a football field. How, how would he know where the fish are from one side of the boat to the other? But the disciples unbelievably do what this guy says, not knowing that it's Jesus yet. And they obey him. And watch what happens. So they cast it on the other side of the boat. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Unbelievable what's happening here. They've been fishing all night. Now at the suggestion of one guy 100 yards away, they all of a sudden bring in this great haul of fish. What's the lesson here for us, Harvest Decatur? What's John trying to teach us with this story? Here's what he's teaching us. Disobedience leads to failure. Obedience, on the other hand, leads to fruitfulness. Go ahead and write that down as number two in your notes. Obedience to Christ leads to fruitfulness. Self-sufficiency, that's a fail. That leads to failure. Obedience to Christ, that leads to fruitfulness. Let me just expand on this a little bit for our benefit. Let's step outside of the story and extract from this a broader principle for our lives. 
Jesus's words, Jesus's commands are always trustworthy, church. Can I get an amen on that? You can always trust them. And you should always obey them, even when it's hard to obey them. Are the commands of Scripture sometimes hard to obey? It's okay to say yes. Are they hard to obey sometimes? Are they sometimes counterintuitive, even the words of Jesus? Yeah, they are. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, said Jesus. That's counterintuitive. That's hard. And yet that we can trust in obedience to that, that there's fruitfulness on the other side of that. Jesus also said, honor your father and mother. Sometimes it's hard to honor your father and mother. Don't amen that. Just, you know, nod your head in agreement. That's not always easy to do. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. None of that is easy. None of that is easy. But the lesson that God wants to teach us here from this passage, the lesson that John wants you to take away from this passage is that disobedience leads to failure and obedience leads to fruitfulness. Let's go back to the narrative here. You know, they didn't recognize Jesus' vo- his face. Maybe they recognized his voice. I don't know. But something about him calling from the shore, telling them to cast on the other side of the boat, something about that triggered something in their minds to do this, to obey, to not question, to not call this guy out, or not to ignore this bystander on the seashore. And I think it's because there's a memory trace. As Jesus does this, There's a memory trace of something that happened earlier in the ministry of Jesus. And that took place about three years before John 21 and Luke chapter 5. I want to read this for you. You can follow along with me on the screen because there's a lot of similarities between that story in Luke and what we're reading here in John 21. Here's what Luke writes. Luke says, on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Peter's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Does that sound familiar? We worked all night and we didn't get anything. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed in the nets a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners, James and John, and the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. This is that moment where Jesus says, No more fishing fish. You're going to fish for men. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. They had left these nets behind and come and follow Jesus. That previous incident, Luke 5, that happened three years before John 21. 
And, and that's when Peter left all that paraphernalia, left his boat, left his nets, came to follow Jesus. And now here they are three years later after Jesus' resurrection, after Peter's denial, going back to that profession, going back to that thing that Jesus had called them out of. And here's the question you got to ask. They're disobedient now, going out there fishing, trying to reestablish a profession. If that's true, if they were disobedient, then why would Jesus allow them in their disobedience after a night of not catching anything? Why would God allow them to bring in this huge catch of fish? Does Jesus reward disobedience? Not typically, no. So why would he let them bring in this huge catch of fish? I think it's for two reasons. I think, first of all, it's meant to be a reminder to those disciples who Jesus is. Remember me, Peter? Remember me? I'm the one that five years ago told you to do the same thing and you caught all those fish. I'm back. I'm better than ever. I'm raised from the dead. And I, I think he meant that to trigger their memory. That miracle is this miracle. I'm still the same Jesus in control of your lives, in control of the sea and the fish. And I also think it's a reminder to them as this, they catch all these fish that they are not fishers of fish anymore. They are fishers of men. And their activities, whether they're fisher of men or fisher of fish, whatever it is, it's fully dependent on the Lord, on obedience to Christ. Obey Christ and there's phenomenal fruitfulness. Obey Christ and the nets will be full to the breaking point. Disregard Jesus, depend upon yourself. Your work will be empty and fruitless and frustrating. I think that's a principle that even we can take into our lives. Obey Jesus and you will metaphorically be speaking, met metaphorically speaking, have a boat full of fish, disobey, and all of your activities will lead to failure. By the way, Jesus let them fish all night before he showed up. He let them experience failure before he shows up and helps them. They had to reach the end of themselves before he was able to help them. So watch what happens next. I think... I think that they already had an inkling before they threw the net on the other side of the boat that it was Jesus. Maybe it's because of his voice. Maybe it's because of that memory trace of what happened three years before. I, I can't explain other than that why they would obey this guy on the shoreline. But now, regardless of whether they knew it was him or not, once this massive haul of fish come in, now they know for sure, at least John knows for sure. He's the first one to say it out loud. Look at verse 7 with me. After all these fish were caught, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Not it's Jesus. Not just it's Jesus. It's the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus, the person who was raised from the dead. You know, the one that we were sent to Galilee to wait for, which we stopped waiting for and went fishing instead. He's here. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I don't even know what that's like. How do you throw yourself into the sea? It's like, I just have this scene, and I've already mentioned this, of Forrest Gump seeing Lieutenant Dan on the shoreline and casting himself, launching himself into the sea. And maybe Peter's like, hey, John, you beat me to the tomb. You're not going to beat me this time. I'm going to beat you to Jesus. And Peter just launches himself. And this is 
tell me if you agree with this. This is perfectly consistent with Peter's personality, isn't it? Isn't that just like Peter to do that? He's not somebody to think something through. He's impetuous. So he throws himself into the sea. Meanwhile, verse 8, the other disciples who were a little more, you know, cautious, came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So here's Peter coming up out of the water. Just imagine this. His his beard is sopping wet. His hair is disheveled. His clothes are soaked. And he's grinning from ear to ear as he sees Jesus on the shore. And what's Jesus doing? He's cooking breakfast for them. (laughs) Just marvel at that. Can I just say something? Let me just say something real quick before we continue here. Ghosts don't cook breakfast, okay? Are you with me now? Apparitions don't cook breakfast. And they don't eat breakfast either. Jesus is not a ghost. They're not seeing a ghost here. This is Jesus in the flesh, raised from the dead again, appearing before them. And what is he doing? He's, you know, they're they're tired. They're exhausted. They've been fishing all night. Jesus, humbly and with a servant's heart, the person who just conquered the grave is cooking for them. Remember what Jesus did the night that he was arrested, the night before he was crucified, what was he doing with his disciples? He was washing their feet humbly. Pre-resurrection, post-resurrection, Jesus humbly serving his disciples as an object lesson to them. This is what we do. This is how you disciple others. This is how we, you go and you were sent as I was sent by the Father to serve others. And notice also what the disciples see when they get to shore. I've mentioned this before already a few weeks ago. I think it bears repeating. What did they see? A charcoal fire. This Greek word, anthrakia, charcoal fire, incredibly rare word, only used twice in the New Testament. The first time is when Peter was around that fire. There was a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus three times. Now, as Jesus shows up, Jesus is cooking on a charcoal fire. As a little reminder to Peter, yeah, I I know what you did, Peter. (laughs) I know what you did around that fire. You messed up, Peter. You messed up big. But my grace is sufficient for you. My calling on your life still stands. You are not a fisher of fish. You are a fisher of men. Leave your nets and come follow me. Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Here's the final principle from this text. Self-sufficiency leads to failure. Obedience to Christ leads to fruitfulness. And the grace of God leads to restoration. What does Jesus do after Peter swims to shore? And the other disciples come with him. Does Jesus lecture them? Does Jesus rebuke them for fishing for fish instead of fishing for men? 
No, Jesus is more subtle than that. He's more humble than that too. He's, here's what he does. He cooks some breakfast. He cooks some breakfast. And look at verse 10 with me. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Did they really catch the fish or did Jesus catch the fish? He's willing to give at least some of the credit to them for that. So Simon Peter went aboard and he hauled that net full of fish, full of large fish, 153 of them, 153 fish. Why is that significant? Why would John tell us about that? Is that symbolic of something else? No, the reason John tells us about it is he was there and he saw it. Maybe he even counted it himself. Look at all these fish, 153 of them. And by the way, this is the kind of thing that only an eyewitness would tell you. If you're just making up something, you wouldn't just pick this number uh, out of the air. Why does John mention there are 153? Because he was there and there were really 153 there. This many fish. And John, you know, John says as part of that miracle that Jesus allowed them to catch all of these fish after not catching anything all night. John says in all there, there were so many of them, the net was not torn. Not like before. And John's an experienced fisherman. He knew how many fish one of these nets could handle. And he knew that 153 fish were too many for this net. But somehow, miraculously, because Jesus was involved in that, the net didn't tear. It's as if Jesus was miraculously responsible for the catch of fish, but also miraculously responsible for retaining the fish. And Jesus said to them, come. And have breakfast. And now none of the disciples, look at this, verse 12. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? <laughs> they knew it was the Lord. That is hilarious. I, they knew it was the Lord, but they didn't dare ask him, who are you? Are you the Lord? I know it's him, but is it him? You know, there's that whole recognizable, not recognizable thing going on here. That's Jesus. Well, yeah, but he's different. He's, he's not the same as he was before the resurrection, but he is kind of like Jesus. But none of them dare ask him. You know, if, when Sonny and I lived in Chicago, this is before we had Alistair, we, uh, we went to dinner with some friends of ours in downtown Chicago, and we went into this Walgreens for, I don't even know why we were there. We went to buy something with our friends, and while we were in this Walgreens, we saw these two movie stars inside this Walgreens. It was Vince Vaughn and Jennifer Aniston, just there, hanging out at the Walgreens. I don't know why. And I dared... Our friend, Rachel, who was with us, I said, go ask them. Because we're like, I think it's them. It's not them. Is it them? No, maybe not. Go ask them, Rachel. Go ask them if it's Vince Vaughn and Jennifer. I'm sure movie stars love it when people go up to them and ask them, are you really so-and-so? Well, our friend, she did it. She did it. We left the Walgreens and said, hey, come back and tell us if it's really them. She went up to them, and they said, yes, we're movie stars, et cetera, et cetera. She came out, yeah, it's them. So what? Let's go to dinner. I think something like that is happening here, which it's Jesus. It is Jesus. No, it's not. Don't ask him. I don't want to look like an idiot and ask him. But they know, they know in their heart of hearts, it's him. Who else does this? Who else does, you know, I read a commentary this last week that said, you know, these guys are experienced fishermen. 
great fishermen, you would think, but the only time they ever catch fish in the Gospels is when Jesus allows them to catch fish. And so I think that's the trigger. They know it's Jesus beyond even what they can't recognize in this new resurrection body of his. And so then Jesus came, verse 13, took the bread and gave it to them. This is so humble. It's just an amazing picture of Jesus. And so also with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And that's it. That's, you know, Jesus had breakfast with the disciples. It's kind of, I don't know, anticlimactic. That's it. That's it. Did Jesus restore Peter? I mean, all these things are happening and Jesus is talking and serving them, but Jesus hasn't talked directly to Peter. He hasn't said you're restored. He hasn't allowed Peter to be alleviated of whatever guilt he feels after denying Jesus. Does Jesus still want Peter to serve him? Is Peter still allowed to serve Jesus after his magnificent blunder a few days before this? What does Jesus say next to Peter? We'll come back next week and I'll tell you. And we'll look at it together. It's fantastic what Jesus says to Peter. Don't miss it next week. But let me close with this. I heard this last week a story from Bishop Wallace Ben, who's an Anglican minister, an Anglican pastor. And he said that when he was a young minister in training, he heard one of the best sermons he ever heard from his mentor pastor. And this pastor had preached a sermon on James 3. He had preached a, uh, a message on gossiping and the use of the tongue, the evil use of the tongue. And he said that after this pastor preached this amazing sermon, everybody in the church was convicted. Everybody was repenting. And after the service, as parishioners were leaving the church, a woman came up to the pastor who was the worst gossiper in the entire church. I mean, this, this message was tailor-made for her, if it ever was tailor-made for anybody. And so this woman came up to the pastor, and she said, thank you, pastor. That was, that was a brilliant message on gossiping. That was so good. It's the exact message that Mrs. Jones over here needed to hear. I'm so glad you had the courage to preach that to her. You know, I think sometimes the temptation for us is when we hear God's word preach, we think to ourselves, ooh, this is perfect for so-and-so. You guys ever feel that? I do. It's perfect for so-and-so. This is perfect for what's her name? And we forget in those moments that the word of God is meant to impact our lives and there's a way in which God is trying to reach us. Maybe some of us, this morning, maybe some of you this morning say, Pastor Tony, that was a great message. That message was for you, Pastor Tony. You're our Peter. You're the fisher of men for our church. You're the discipler. Don't ever quit on that. Don't ever go back to finance and accounting. Okay, I won't. I don't want to go back to accounting. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to be faithful. Pray for me to press on in this duty that God has called me to. But let me say also, aren't you called Harvest Decatur likewise to be a discipler? 
Aren't you called to be a fisher of men? I'm a nurse. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm an engineer. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, before you're those things vocationally, I get it. I know we can't all be Levites like Pastor Tony. We can't all be, you know, professional, vocational pastors. But even before you're a stay-at-home mom, even before you're an engineer, even before you're a nurse, you are called to be a fisher of men. You are a discipler. And let me even add to that. God has empowered you in whatever profession you have, in whatever capacities you serve, as a mom, as a dad, even before you're a mom and dad disciplining your children, you are discipling them to be followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Happy Mother's Day, moms. You are a discipler. We don't want good kids here at Harvest Decatur. How many times have I said this from this pulpit? We want gospel kids. Kids who love the Lord and follow the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You are a discipler. Mom, dad, engineer, nurse, teacher. This is our calling. This is the task that Jesus has given all of us. Jesus commanded us saying this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our calling, Harvest Decatur. This is, this is what God wants us to do. And here's how we synthesize that with our church's mission statement. Harvest Decatur exists to glorify God by making mature disciples who worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ. We're all disciples. We're all fishers of men. Let's bow and pray and ask God to bless us in that activity. Thank you, Lord, for this high calling. Thank you, Lord, for the men and women of Harvest Decatur who have committed to this task, to this commission, to these duties. Lord, and I pray for us as a church to do those things better, to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Give us opportunities, Lord, to make disciples. Give us opportunities to be fishers of men. We heard this morning already about VBS and this great opportunity that our church has to disciple and to minister and even some outside of our church who will be here this summer God empower us for that work give us courage to step up to lead to minister, to serve. Lord, I am taken aback by this picture of you.
king of the universe, resurrected from the dead. There you are on the shores of Galilee serving the disciples with breakfast. These disobedient disciples, unruly disciples, and you are serving them and loving them. Lord, thank you for that picture. Help us to imitate that service, to have the heart of a servant like you do, God. I pray, Jesus, that you would equip us, equip us better to obey this great commission, this task that you've given us to make disciples. Empower us, I pray. Do you agree with that, Harvest Decatur? If you do, say amen with me. Amen.